after the service, we will be having a, uh, a brunch. Uh, you're all invited. You're all welcome to come. We hope you'll be able to make it. Uh, this is also going to be an unusual experience in that we're having food here and BJ had nothing to do with it. So uh, we invite you to stick around afterward and uh, continue to fellowship then. Um, as many of you know, I had the privilege of traveling uh, to Israel a couple of uh, years ago. Um, and I was reminded this week uh, during the Easter season of a conversation I had. I was in, in my hotel uh, we were kind of waiting to get everybody gathered together to go to wherever we were going that day, and there's a, a gentleman uh, sitting sitting near me in the lobby uh, who was, uh, uh, you know, also an American uh, visiting, and uh, we got to talking, and he asked about, uh, you know, what I was doing there. Obviously, I didn't have, a, you know, a yarmulke on, and I mentioned that I was with this interfaith clergy group, and we were traveling around, and we had seen these different sites, and I'd, you know, been to the place in, in, uh, in Jerusalem where supposedly Jesus had been buried, and, and, uh, and, and he said, wow, that must, you know, for, for you as a Christian, that must have been very powerful. And I said, well, you know, to be honest, the whole place is chaotic. They've built multiple churches on the site over the years. It's not even, we're not even sure that's where it is. It may well be someplace else, uh, you know. Uh, so it, it, you know, it, it was probably more confusing. I'm still trying to, trying to process it. But, you know, what, what's important, of course, is that we, you know, we believe it, even if it wasn't on that spot, you know, we do believe that somewhere sort of in the zip code, at least, that's where Jesus was buried and where, you know, we, where he, he rose again. And, um, you know, I, you know, I asked him, uh, you know, are you, what, are you uh, a frequent visitor to Israel? He says, well, you know, I usually come at least once a year. Um, I, uh, I'm actually here with my wife and, uh, and my mother-in-law. This was supposed to be a special present for her, her uh, 75th birthday. She was supposed to uh, come and, and, and visit uh, Israel for the first time. She'd always dreamed of it, had never been, and we finally made arrangements to bring her over. I said, well, that must have been very, uh, must have been very gratifying to be able to do that for her. And he said, well... Uh, the problem is, uh, as she was on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city before we came in, she had a stroke and fell and she died. We're actually waiting for all the arrangements to be made to bring her, bring her body back and, and have her buried uh, at our home in New Jersey. I said, oh, I'm, I'm very sorry for your loss. That may her memory be for a blessing. I, I, uh, I imagine it's some comfort to know that at least she had the opportunity to see the holy city before she finally he said, yeah, well, I, I, I think so. I know my, my wife is grateful we were able to do that. And, and as we're talking, um, uh, a rabbi comes in, a you know, very, very orthodox rabbi uh, comes in, and, and, and he says, I'm looking for Murray Fishman. And the gentleman I'm talking to says, I'm, I'm Fishman, yes. The rabbi says, uh, well, sir, um, I'm sorry for your loss, but I have some news to you that may be of some comfort. Your uh, mother-in-law was the direct descendant of the founder of our yeshiva, and uh, because she's the descendant of, of uh, the, the founder, she has the privilege of being buried in our small cemetery, which is which is here in, in Jerusalem. And, uh, and the, the the gentleman says, "Wait, you're saying she's she can be buried here?" He said, "Yes, this is sir. This is." Uh, of course, uh, uh, unusual. Uh, very few people. There's there's not a lot of room left. But people who are direct descendants are are uh, eligible to be buried here. They have that privilege. And he says, "Well, I, uh, Rabbi, I appreciate that. That's that's very kind of you. But I, I think we're going to we're going to 
put her on the LL flight and bring her home to, to Jersey. Uh, and the rabbi says, sir, maybe you don't understand. I, I've, I've had to tell prime ministers they can't bury their mothers here. I've, I, this, just this year, I had a very famous singer, you would know who she was, offer me a million dollars for our seminary if she could be buried here, and I had to decline. We were very strict about this. Uh, only your mother, or your mother-in-law, would would have this privilege as a direct descendant. He says again, Rabbi, I, I mean no offense, and I appreciate that very much. The 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 thing is, the the Reverend here was telling me that there was once a man who was buried here in Jerusalem who came back from the dead, and that's not a risk I'm willing to take. <laughs> I love that one. <clears throat> You know, there are privileges and then there are privileges, right? In our passage this morning in Romans, Paul is talking about privileges in a way that if you're not paying attention, you might think involve him contradicting exactly what he said eight verses earlier. We're in chapter 3 of Romans, beginning of chapter 3. Paul says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And at this point in his argument you would expect him to say none at all, right? I mean, he just spent all of chapter 1 talking about how all of these wicked, evil Gentiles doing their wicked, evil things are terribly naughty in God's sight and are in trouble. And then in chapter 2, he says, and guess what? All of you Jews are also wicked and evil and doing naughty things in God's sight, and you too are in trouble. In fact, especially if you're condemning people for the very things that you're doing, You're especially in trouble. So in chapter 3, he says, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Much to our surprise, he says, there's much in every way. Really? Yes, he says, there's much in every way. I mean, first of all, they were entrusted with the very words of God, with the oracles of God. There are all sorts of great benefits, all sorts of advantages that came from being a Jew. Paul would know about that, right? Paul himself was a Jew. He was, in fact, a very ambitious young Jewish leader. He had profound appreciation and respect for the heritage of his people, for all the blessings that came through the patriarchs, especially for the very words of God, which, of course, he would have studied and memorized and internalized and rolled over in his mind constantly. But then, in verse 9, in our passage this morning, after he talks about the... He kind of refutes a few stupid arguments. Remember, we talked about that the other week. There are some arguments that are just dumb, and the proper response to those is to call the person an idiot and move on, which is precisely what he does here. Verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Of course, we... That is, we Jews, are we in any better shape? Well, no. Hang on a second. Is Paul confused? Is Paul suffering from multiple personalities? No. For one thing, the, the, the phrase, do we have any advantage, which is variously translated, actually is a translation of different Greek words. In 3.1, the connotation of that word is, is what, what privileges do we have? What, what benefits? Is there anything that we have in our favor? Is there anything that we have going for us? 
And the answer is, well, yeah, there's plenty of, plenty of good things that come with being a Jew, but the word in nine basically says, does that mean we get to jump to the front of the line? Does that mean we get special treatment? Kind of like, you know, if you, if you're in one of these elite programs, we, Mary and I throw as much money as we possibly can onto our Marriott credit card, which means that, you know, I, there's like a special line that I get to go in to check in when I check into a hotel, and we get to go in the concierge lounge and get all the, you know, little San Pellegrinos you want. But at the end of the day, I still got to pay to stay there, right? I don't, I don't have any advantage when it comes to, like, being able to stay free. Still got to pay. I get some benefits, but at the end of the day, I'm still on the hook for, for our stay. In the same way... Paul says, do we get any special out? No. Not in any way. Not at all. We have already made the charge well established in the first two chapters that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Jews of course, would quite agree with the idea that Gentiles are under sin. But he's had to make the case, and again, I think he's made it, that just because you were circumcised, just because you came up under Torah, does not mean that you don't have the problems that everybody else has. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good. No, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace. They do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Doesn't seem to allow a lot of wiggle room, does it? I'm not going to go into all of the passages that Paul is quoting here, but I want to look at a few of them here in, in Psalms. The first one that he is alluding to is Psalm 14. Which reads, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There's no one who does good. Yahweh looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God, but all have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never learn, those who devour my people, as men eat bread and who don't call on Yahweh? There they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but Yahweh is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When Yahweh restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. Now, these are psalms, right? These are sort of the the worship book of God's people. This would have been thrown up on the projector in the old synagogue, right? People would have been singing along with this. You imagine the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I, I just read this week, again, a review of a book where people, people are actually trying to go back and, and get some sense of what the music would have been like that would have gone with these psalms. And the great thing about scholarship like that is that 
if you guess wrong, like nobody can disprove that. So <clears throat> let's look at Psalm 140. Rescue me, Yahweh, from evil men. Protect me from men of violence who devise evil plans in their hearts and stir up war every day. They make their tongues as sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Keep me, O Yahweh, from the hands of the wicked. Protect me from men of violence who plan to trip my feet. Proud men have hidden a snare for me. They've spread out the cords of their nets. They've set traps for me along my path. O Yahweh, I say to you, you are my God. Hear, O Yahweh, my cry for mercy. O Lord Yahweh, my strong deliverer who shields my head in the day of battle. Do not grant the wicked their desires, O Yahweh. Don't let their plans succeed or they will become proud. Let the heads of those who surround me be covered with the trouble their lips have caused. Let burning coals fall upon them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits, never to rise. Let slanderers not be established in the land. May disaster hunt down men of violence. I know that Yahweh secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Surely the righteous will praise your name and the upright will live before you. These are psalms that are often known as the imprecatory psalms, basically calling down curses upon the enemies of God and the enemies of his people. There's a clear division in these psalms, right, between the good guys and the bad guys. This is deeply unsophisticated. These psalms involve a prayer that God would rescue his people from those who would harm them. In fact, they only make sense in the context of people who are under threat, people who are afraid of suffering harm. And in this context, the people are crying out to God to deliver them, to save them from the wicked. And they dwell in loving artistic detail on just how wicked the wicked are, on the really nasty things that they do. You get kind of the same tune in a different key in Isaiah chapter 59, which is also a passage that Paul is alluding to here in Romans. Surely the arm of Yahweh is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and they speak lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. There's like this snake theme running through it. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They can't cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They've turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks in them will know peace. And so justice is far from us. 
Righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as though it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but we find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion, treachery against Yahweh, turning our backs on our God, fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived, and so justice is driven back. Righteousness stands off at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty can't enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes prey. See, there, there doesn't seem to be such a big division between them and us, does there? I mean, the Psalms, it's, Oh, Lord, save me from those nasty, wicked people doing all those nasty, wicked things. Which is, happens, right? Don't get me wrong. I mean, there are definitely some nasty, wicked people out there. Can, can I get an amen? Right? Yeah. And they do nasty and wicked things, and they're naughty, right? And they hurt us. But here in Isaiah 59, what the Lord is confessing is that actually His own people have become the ones who are wicked and evil, who have done things that merit His judgment. This, by the way, is one of the reasons that the Pharisees did not like Jesus at all. Because especially we saw this when we studied Matthew. Jesus will give sort of a little snatch from a, a, a verse in the prophets. And if you go back and read the whole context, you get this kind of thing, where Jesus is accusing them of being the very enemies of God that they claim to be fighting against. Well, this would be a problem, wouldn't it? I mean, God's enemies are righteously under his judgment, and now God's own people are like that. And Isaiah goes on and says, Yahweh, look, he was displeased that there was no justice. One of the great understatements in the entire Bible. Yahweh, look, he was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So what did he do? Well, so his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate, the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. Make no mistake. 
ultimately those who come up against God are going to face destruction. From the west, men will fear the name of Yahweh, and from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory, for he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of Yahweh drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares Yahweh. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares Yahweh. Look, Paul says, we know that whatever the law says, whatever Torah says, it says to those who are under Torah, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. From time to time, I'll be at a funeral or memorial service, a viewing, and I'll hear somebody say, well, I bet she's up there now giving God a piece of her mind. I do not think that is what that person is doing. (laughs) I think when we encounter the holy majesty of God, our response is not going to be to complain about the fact that it rained on our wedding day. We will bow down in awe and reverence We will not have anything to say. The whole world will be silenced and held accountable to God. No one, Paul says, is going to be declared righteous in his sight by following Torah. The problem is that it's through Torah that we become conscious of sin. So Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. We all need the Redeemer to come to Zion to save us from our enemies, namely ourselves. It is we who have placed ourselves in the category of enemy. We who have placed ourselves under the righteous wrath and condemnation of a holy God. We all need the Redeemer to come to Zion. The good news is he does. Not to skip ahead too much. That's what we're getting to next. But but we can't skip ahead to that too quickly. This is one of the reasons we've taken so long to go through this. We live in a world where I think we're taught that Everybody's pretty much okay, you know, as long as you're not too much of a jerk, then really, you know, it's all right. God, you know, God generally thinks you're, you know, cute. God does not think you're cute. I mean, even those of you who are, like Jonah. Jonah's cute, but Jonah's also a little bundle of depravity right there. So I would like for us, in response, to sing again that classic hymn, Rock of Ages. It's a confession. It is a declaration. It's an admission 
it is utterly useless if we don't think we need help. And it's silly to sing it if you don't. So if you don't, just sort of be polite. But, but the rest of us, I invite Craig to shut off my microphone and turn on everybody else.